Concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Keep it in mind, keep it in mind. You mustn't be afraid to dream of the bigger, darling. Just us. The call went out. We aren't the only ones to answer, you know. You're shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Because it's all part of the plan. Are you watching closely? Hello, I'm Ben Brantlinger. And I'm Robert Denfeld. We're your hosts for Must Go Faster. And this is the Chris Nolan Chronicles, part one. And here we go. All right. So (laughs) when it comes to Christopher Nolan, I would say no director in our lifetime has been better at making blockbuster entertainment on the largest scale possible and then fusing that with creative storytelling, mind-bending ideas, and directorial vision. he's, He's got the best of both worlds here. It's mega commercial success and renowned critical acclaim. So Chris Nolan's filmography has perhaps been the single biggest source of the movie monoculture over the last 15 years. These are instances where his movies have dominated pop culture during the release and have continued to leave lasting legacies. Part of why we wanted to do this series is the fact that basically every type of human being on the planet has seen at least some of his movies, whether it's the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, Memento, Interstellar, Dunkirk... And it's important to note that not only do people watch Nolan films, they have a history of actively seeking them out, leaving their homes to go and see the latest at their local movie theater on an opening weekend. We should, of course, note that we're currently living in a time where people are distinctly not leaving their homes due to a global pandemic. Nevertheless, pre-pandemic, there was a long track record of moviegoers hitting their cineplex to see the newest Nolan flick and then continuing to obsess over it long after the end credits roll. Now, nearly all the talk around Nolan this summer has been centered on his new movie, Tenet, starring John David Washington and Robert Pattinson. But that conversation is, of course, not so much about the movie itself and what it's about and what kind of surprises to expect in the story. It's rather been, okay, how many times will Tenet's release get delayed? When will it come out? How will it come out? Where will it be opening? What's the release strategy? And when it does come out, the biggest question, will it actually be safe to go see it in theaters in light of COVID? But in this series, we're not going to spend time speculating on all those hypothetical scenarios around Tenet's release. There's a million other places to get in on that discourse if you'd like. Instead, we're going to focus on pretty much everything else about the filmmaker. Rob lives in LA, I live in Brooklyn, so as soon as we can see Tenet, we will do so and discuss it on this pod. So there's your Tenet disclaimer. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Christopher Nolan is an event filmmaker. Right. You know, his films are events. People want to go see them. As you said, yes. leave your house, uh, see them in the movie theater very critically. He's a huge advocate of that. Uh, people yes. want to see them multiple times and talk about them and break them down with coworkers and friends and family. 
Um, oftentimes too much, I would say, <laughs> analysis goes into his films. There are a lot of Reddit threads out there for Christopher Nolan fans. Um, that makes sense, though, because the rise of his career coincides with the rise of internet culture over the past two decades. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it makes sense that he has such a loyal fan base that will see all of his work. And it's a pretty massive crowd that goes and sees all of his work, I would say. Uh, his his box office success is no secret. Um, and I would say for the most part, his work bears that discussion and deeper analysis. You know, some films are better than others, as is the case with every director ever. But I will say even early on in this process of rewatching all of his films and reading about his work and, you know, analyzing it and talking about it with you, I'm excited about the sort of trajectory of his career and to just sort of study it and break it down in a a different kind of way. And yeah, so how has Nolan, you know, been able to pull this off and like what makes him such a rare phenomenon in the modern era of filmmaking? You know, why do his movies and, you know, by extension, his imagination resonates so much in the culture? Uh, You know, this and, and much more is what we'll explore in our new podcast series the Chris Nolan Chronicles um, will examine his entire 20-plus year career by reviewing all 11 of his movies and discussing the trademarks, the techniques, the themes, the visuals, the performances, the sounds, the hype machine, even the gaps in narrative logic uh, that define Nolan as one of our most important filmmakers. So in part one of this six-part series, we'll we'll discuss his debut feature following and talk about his hit follow-up in Memento. We'll also explore Nolan's unique approach to storytelling and his talent for original ideas. But first, let's kind of help set the stage and do a just a quick overview of Nolan's backstory. Um, Rob, you want to give the listeners some light and just how Nolan came up and you know yeah. Bringing, you know, Sure. And, you know, we'll we'll kind of touch on some of these things as we go forward in the episodes. Right. We're not going to cover his entire backstory here, but we just wanted to introduce some highlights. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, he was born July 30th, 1970 in London, England. So he's four, currently 49 years old. His father was a British advertising executive who worked uh, as a creative director. His mother was an American flight attendant uh, and then became an English teacher. And so the family actually split time between Chicago and London. And so Christopher Nolan, you know, we've obviously been doing a lot of research for this podcast series and I'm reading a Christopher Nolan book. You were both reading articles, watching interviews, et cetera, obviously watching the films. Um, So I just, you know, throughout this, we're going to touch on little nuggets that we have learned along the way. Um, Something I found interesting in an interview with Nolan, uh, he says that his first film memory was a re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves that he saw in the theater. Uh, And he he said he was so scared of the witch that he had to hide behind some of the movie. uh, By the way, uh, I was I was damn scared of that witch as well. I mean, who isn't? uh, Right. Right. right, (laughs) Yeah. I can. Looks great on Disney Plus right now, by the way. The (laughs) re-release. Incredible. Um, He, you know, began making films as a kid um little stop motion uh mixed animated uh stop motion a little bit of live action Mm -hmm. uh he says his first official film that he put together was a a take on star wars which came out when he was seven years old 
and he called this this film Space Wars. And I thought it was interesting that Star Wars came out when he was in Chicago and he got to see it a little bit earlier than some of his friends back in in England. And apparently he traveled back to England after having seen Star Wars and was like the official ambassador. Mo- yeah, ambassador. Like, <laughs> right. I'm and, just imagining you know, like this young little Chris Nolan boy just being like Star Wars bloody brilliant, you know, to like <laughs> right. his other young lads in uh in the uk uh you know he apparently broke his his dad's um super 8 camera when he was eight years old when he strapped it to the bottom of a car and and it bottomed out so he was obviously like he would later strap cars to uh jet fighters uh (laughs) yeah he was yeah so from a young age really going for some adventurous shots um so he getting more into his uh you know young adult life he he studied english literature at the university college london uh known as ucl um his dad said it might be a good idea to study something other than filmmaking to get a different take on things he always knew he was kind of like singularly focused throughout his adolescence that he was gonna try to be a filmmaker or or a writer in some aspect um but he decided to go to UCL because it had really great uh, student filmmaking facilities and resources. Um, so that was a central reason he chose that school. And he quickly became the president of the film society there. His then girlfriend, now wife, Emma Thomas, was also in the film society. Um, he graduated with his English literature degree in 1993. Um, he began working in uh radio and television uh, low-level production type jobs and he was actually a corporate filmmaker at that point um, doing small odd jobs and he, he says later on that that really trained him to work quickly and and light efficiently and things like that yeah um, his first short called Tarantella was finished in 1989 when he was at uh, UCL and it aired on a public access channel in Chicago when Nolan was 19 years old, which is a pretty big feat for a young college student. Um, he, he later made a, a short film called Larceny in 1995 um, that screened at the 1996 Cambridge Film Festival. Uh, he made that using UCL resources. That was also his first collaboration with Jeremy uh, Theobald. So after Larceny in 1995-96, he began production of his maybe most well-known short film called Doodlebug in 1997. Let's talk about Doodlebug here quickly, because yeah. as you said, this kind of first notable and only notable short, I would say, is the only sure. one you know I, I had heard of. So takes place entirely in one room and is about a man chasing an insect around his flat with a shoe, <laughs> only discover when killing it that he's, you know, spoiler alert, it's a three minute short, you know, sorry, uh, that it's a miniature of himself. Um, this short clocks in at three minutes so we're about to do 90 minutes on it now. Um, right. <laughs> but the man, as you mentioned, played by uh, Jeremy Theobald, he would mm-hmm. appear in Nolan's first feature following, which we'll talk about later in this episode. Um, he actually played also a small part in Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. You know, Doodlebug, like, it was my first time watching it. Fired it up on the, the Criterion channel. Yeah, you can find it on the Criterion channel right now. You know, 
it's all it's shot all in black and white. Um, mm-hmm. You can already see kind of Nolan's knack for creative shots and, and camera angles are already evident in this this short doodlebug that he made, and it has like this eerie, ominous score that runs throughout the short that it gave me some major like David Lynch vibes, which I wouldn't say is a director that you know, looking forward to the rest of his career, you know, I Lynch vibes aren't, aren't, aren't the first, uh, director comparison that I would, that I would make, um, for Nolan. But I think this short definitely seemed to be influenced by maybe, you know, the eraser head, blue velvet, mm. twin peaks that, you know, happened, sure. happened before it. Um, you know, what do you, what do you think, uh, a do the doodle bug short? Yeah. I mean, it's a really impressive, uh, I guess you can call it a student film. He wasn't technically, a student at that point but he made it you know using the ucl re- ucl resources and and that stuff um yeah like you said it has really amazing camera work and blocking and really precise camera movements um and a pretty riveting performance from jeremy theobald like i'm pretty impressed it grabs your attention and doesn't let go like that's that's kind of a you know a hallmark of nolan characters that they're very uh you know driven by yeah yeah, highly motivated by something and that that comes across right away in this in this short and um i did want to mention that you know nolan has since cited the work of uh visual artist mc escher and then novelist uh jorge luis borges um who is known for short stories that thematically include like dreams and labyrinths um recursive things happening and obviously that is something that pops up in many of of nolan's works throughout the years um it's something that really uh you know it's a it's a good little bite of nolan early on that that shows a lot of his interests and you know the the worlds within worlds like you said it's it's about a a man looking around his apartment for a a miniature version of himself and then we yeah. realize that actually there's a larger version of himself searching for that version right. of himself and so it's a yeah. you know a paradox and it's And uh, you can't help but think of Inception like when I saw right. the way that that unfolded um you know dream within a dream yada yada right, right. like I I don't think it's any coincidence when you just look at the way that the story of inception is told that he makes, you know, basically 13 years later. I also think like that theme of obsession you see in, in films of his, like the prestige, um, sure. you know, which we'll, which we'll get into, into part two. Uh, but you're definitely able to see, um, you know, th- certain strains of themes that he uses, uh, you know, in his career in the, in the following, following 20 years. And the opening shot, I wanted to mention the the title frame with the uh, so it's Doodlebug and the two O's are actually eyes moving back and forth. It's you know for for a low basically no budget short film, um, it has some interesting uh, effect work and shows a, a high level of creativity, which obviously all of his films do. Definitely, and so I you know I want to say. Lisa's Doodlebug, um, you know, Nolan and Thomas, Emma Thomas, you know, they made attempts at features in the mid nineties. Uh, I, I don't know if you mentioned this, this already like student angst film called Larry Mahoney, which no, was I scrapped and, and then never released. Right. And like during this period in Nolan's career, like he had very little success getting projects off the ground. 
Like he later recalled uh, the stack of rejection letters he received, adding that, quote, there was a very limited pool of finance in the UK. To be honest, it's a very clubby kind of place. Right. You know, never had any support whatsoever from the British film industry. Mm-hmm. So kind of throwing shade there. And since then, you know, his 10 films, Tenet will be the 11th, um, they've gra- grossed over $4.7 billion worldwide, have garnered a total of 34 Oscar nominations, you know, Time Magazine named him one of the hundred most influential people in the world in 2015. Uh, in 2019, he was appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire for his services to film, which sounds like a hell of an honor. And yeah. you know, Scorsese, you know, our boy Marty uh, identified Nolan as a filmmaker creating beautifully made films on a big scale. So mm-hmm. Nolan's definitely a filmmaker that um, is adored by you know all of his peers and, and yeah. people like, you know, Scorsese well, who have been around for much longer. I think I'm able to recognize, you know, how, how much of an achievement his career has been. So Rob, do you want to talk about following? Sure. His first uh, feature length movie released in 1998, his first kind of real breakthrough. Um, it's about a young writer who follows strangers for material and meets this thief who takes him in under his wing. That's kind of just like the setup. Yeah. Your eyes um, drift across a crowd of people, and they slowly stop and fix on one person, and all of a sudden that person isn't part of the crowd anymore. They become an individual, just like that. Just became irresistible. So you followed women? I followed anybody. I just wanted to see where they went, what they did. It was supposed to just be completely random. You would never follow the same person twice. That was the most important rule. That was the one that I broke first. You know, Nolan came up with the idea for the film because he personally had his home broken into uh-huh. and wondered uh, what people thought as they went around looking at his belongings once they broke into it. That was kind of uh-huh. the seed of coming up with this story idea. Mm-hmm. And I think like Nolan always likes to make his films feel like personal at the core, mm-hmm. um, even when they're at like the scale of something like Interstellar or Dark Knight Rises. Um, and I think this is kind of the beginning of that for him um, is, you know, always having the, these story ideas um, come back, you know, in some, maybe it's even like abstract way, but uh, that has some kind of personal connection to his own experiences. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, following like, uh, you know, it's very plot driven and, mm-hmm. and quite like talky, like there's no action sequences per se. Um, it's more so suspense that's built through dialogue. Like I imagine he probably, you know, wanted to have some, you know, large scale event sequences. I'm sure. Um, but with a budget of merely six thousand dollars, right. um, which is just insane. Like it, it's one of the least expensive films in history. Mm-hmm. To make essentially a feature length film on just six thousand dollars, like, is remarkable. Right. And I read a quote that he says, like, we've got a pretty serious claim on being you know, following being the cheapest film ever made. And huh. in contrast, you look at like the budget for Tenant, which was 205 million, his most <laughs> right. expensive, like that's uh that's quite a leap. Sure. And yeah, so it is a feature film. It is, it's an hour and nine minutes running time. It's a gift. Um, right. <laughs> that and so, so they, all the people involved for the most part were working full-time jobs as they made this film and right. shot this film in 1997. I think what following represents is kind of the uh, the peak of what I was able to do on my own or just with friends, uh, just using our own resources and borrowing equipment and, and sort of using the things around us to make a film. 
the way they shot it is just over the course of weekends throughout the year, yeah. they would just, uh, you know, all meet up for, you know, 24 hours or for 48 hours. Yeah. And, for, uh, <laughs> and, and go around and, you know, steal a lot of shots in practical locations, a lot of shots on the streets. Um, you know, the Christopher Nolan's parents' house was the central location um, so yeah, they really embraced the challenges of the limited resources and kind of use that to their advantage to give mm-hmm. the film the feel that it has. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it plays on, um, you know, some noir genre tropes and, and others, um, you know, I, I believe and others as well that, you know, Nolan was heavily influenced by directors like, uh, Alfred Hitchcock and Steven Spielberg, and especially Hitchcock in this film, it, it really feels like a lot of references to his some of his works. Yeah, I was you know, gonna say Hitchcock. That that's what stood out to me is like the biggest influence. Yeah. Um, just like the tone, mm-hmm. it, there's like this level of like coolness at work sure. in, in following that I think and and kind of like a dirty like you know it's it's not like a a popular topic to talk about of like. Yeah, sort it's of following people. Well, yeah, these are like dirt bags. Yeah, uh, subversive <laughs> content a, a bit. There is like um, yeah, like a tough and like rawness to uh-huh. this, and I think that is due to many reasons, including you know the uh, how low they were on resources and the you know the, the budget only being six thousand dollars. But I think it actually they're able to use that to his advantage and like give this movie um, yeah just a very like tough and raw feel that actually stands out you know when you look at the rest of his career and he's working with massive budgets and right you know how kind of um the sheen of those of those films like this Mm. one is like really kind of like grungy looking Mm. and i think i think it it stands out as kind of like an interesting entry in his filmography when you think of it that way yeah no doubt um it premiered at tiff in in 1998 uh, Toronto International Film Festival. It was bought by the Criterion Collection in 2012. So there is a Criterion Collection version, and you can find it on Criterion Channel. We're already uh, at two rent- Criterion Channel. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Big fans. Shout out. Um, so the music is done by David Julian, who also did the music for Doodlebug and Memento, which we'll talk about later in this episode. And Christopher Nolan shot this film himself. He was the the credited cinematographer and director and writer and editor, um, you know, obviously One in, in low budget filmmaking, there's typically an auteur kind of at the, at the head of all departments. Yeah. Um, and the he, score that you mentioned. Yeah, go ahead. Can we go? Yeah. So it was my first time watching following, you know, for this pod series, going into it, looking for early trademarks that would, you know, kind of foreshadow Nolan's career as a filmmaker. We already, you know, mentioned a few of those, but the first thing that stood out to me is right in the opening seconds, there's like this this propulsive score that's like yeah. unmistakable Nolan, like right out of the gates. Like if I just closed my eyes and heard it, I'd be like, yeah, this is the guy that made Inception. Uh-huh. Like, you know, it, it, it it's pretty wild. Like the movie starts and like sonically, it's like you're watching a climax in Inception or something. Right. Um, right. And that's something that just stood out to me immediately upon, upon rewatching it is that score. For sure. And it's shot on 16 millimeter um, black and white film, um, 137 to 1 aspect ratio. So this film actually won the Best First Feature Award at the San Francisco International Film Festival. And that's where 
we can get to this more with Memento, yeah. but that's where he sort of sold his script for Memento. Mm-hmm. He had already uh, had that written at that point because of the post-production process took a little time for following. Um, so yeah, I mean, so this film, as I said, they really embraced the, the nature of the limitations and, you know, shot as much as possible with available light, you know, admittedly often, uh, they blocked actors next to windows to just use the daylight as, as their key light. Um, and it's a very subjective film. Like Christopher Nolan says as his, you know, he, he was a corporate, uh, filmmaker at this point and had shot other shorts, as I said, and he, he really loved and embraced being behind the camera mm-hmm. in terms of a, a director that also was directing the camera in, in real time. Um, so a lot of, it really puts the audience into the minds of the characters seeing, seeing the story unfold through their eyes. And it obviously works well with the voyeuristic qualities of this story. Um, it's, it's a story about looking and observing, but also kind of the trickery behind these criminals and, and hiding the truth and deception character and audience manipulation, um, which is, you know, something that is a a streamline or sort of a thread line through Nolan's career and also has a lot of metaphors for about the, the nature of filmmaking itself. If we want to get into the, you know, deeper analysis of this film, I would say also too, like there are abrupt cuts in following that just like, don't make any sense, which again is for better or for worse, like a trademark of Nolan, like in, he does dip into, non-linear storytelling you know there's a lot of uh back and forth cross-cutting particularly in the climax like there is you know narrative confusion like it wouldn't Mm -hmm. be a nolan movie without some kind of narrative confusion um i read that following jumps 31 uh jumps 31 times between different time periods Mm. of the story making quote following the movie more perplexing uh Mm. and you know little did we know that nolan would quadruple this number of jumps like in his next film uh memento which we'll we'll talk about next um there's also some some rooftop shots that i Mm -hmm. feel like were kind of the origins of his interest there like you see a lot of rooftop shots in the dark knight trilogy and inception uh the scene of the two main characters um cobb and the young man Mm -hmm. uh talking at like the coffee shop like the way it's shot and the mm. disposition of the characters and how kind of quickly the camera is cutting between, you know, both of their viewpoints mm. could be looking too far into this, but it reminded me of like the way the dark Knight interrogation scene was shot of like yeah. Batman and, and Joker. There's some burning ambition inside you, isn't it? Something of the starving artist in you, no? No. No. You're a painter. No. Photos. No. Right. No. Writer, eh? No. But you write. Not much, but sometimes. Sometimes he doesn't. Also, I don't know if you noticed, the Batman logo is on one of the doors of one of the apartments that they break into, which I thought was like Yeah, the Tim Burton 1989 Batman logo. Yeah, not to be, yeah, it was was a, uh, definitely wasn't the Batman and Robin logo. (laughs) Right. Uh, It was the, the Burton. And... You know, the clever twist ending, you know, which I don't think we should spoil here just because, like, mm-hmm. I don't think as many people are familiar with this movie, but it reminded me of kind of the twist in The Prestige, for example, which he mm. makes about, you know, seven years later. There's kind of like this, like, aha moment. The part we call 
the prestige. The whole film, it's shot entirely like in this kind of handheld, single camera style, grainy black and white, really has like a home movie quality to it. Mm -hmm. You know, just crazy again to think of like going from this to something like Interstellar, you know, on the largest Mm -hmm. possible scope imaginable or strapping, you know, a freaking IMAX camera onto like jet fighters as Nolan does in Dunkirk. Um, But um, yeah, let's hand out... um, Let's hand out some awards here. So for every movie discussion on the Chris Nolan Chronicles, um, we'll give out five different awards. So the first is is best moment, which basically, you know, best scene or sequence in the movie. Um, Rob, what do you have as your, your best moment in following? I was very tempted to say the last two minutes of the film, mm-hmm. but I didn't really want to spoil sort of what, happens and it's hard to talk about it without doing that sure 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 and in some ways i kind of feel that it didn't work precisely <laughs> right as, so as in calling it the best uh yeah <laughs> no I, I i agree with that as well i i don't know if it totally worked yeah so for some of those reasons i decided to go with uh the first break-in that Cobb and the young man do together um they they break into this apartment and some of like the the key rules of the film and the the psychology behind Cobb and his his uh sort of rationale for yeah breaking and entering and burglarizing these apartments and um you know not necessarily taking the the things of the most value but he has this sort of like sick set of rules that he yeah to rationalize lives by yeah and you know a quote in there that's what it's all about interrupting someone's life making them see all the things that they took for granted like when they go back and buy all this stuff from the shelves of the insurance money they'll have to think for the first time in a long time why they wanted all this stuff what it's for if you take it away you show them what they had i just thought that's like really summarizes what the movie's about like they they break in they look around they get a sense of the these people's lives and um, you know, obviously, the uh, the character of the young man is a, a struggling writer, and he, in his his uh, interrogation with the police officer, he kind of tells him that the reason he started following people was just to build up his repertoire of characters and, you know, learn about people and find subject matter for his writing, and he kind of adapts that to his his breaking and entering that he he starts to go on so yeah that that scene it also features that that sound yeah that use of score that you mentioned it, it's just to me that that scene always like catches me off guard and is really like captivating so that's my best moment well yeah that's the that's the moment i chose as well oh, hopefully awesome. we don't have the same exact answers for i'm sure these, we don't but, no. <laughs> uh, who knows See? Nobody home. Okay, first things first, we need a bag. Can I just have a white whisper? Yeah, just the pulsating score from the opening that kicks back in in that scene. The way the man just observes Cobb as he, like, schools him to tell him, like, exactly what kind of, you know, people the owners of this apartment must be just by looking at their belongings. And just, like, the tension of the owners coming home, them leading up to the rooftop. I just feel like... It was kind of a signature, like Nolan setup and execution that you know is already on display, you know, during this this movie that he makes in 1997. Right. Um, 
best performance next award self-explanatory who gave the best acting performance in the movie maybe we have the same answer for this but mine is um alex hall who plays Cobb, mm. and just the way that he like manipulates the man is is quite chilling it's very hitchcockian mm-hmm. um the character of Cobb. It's his only acting credit. Like, I think I'm pretty positive this is just like one of Nolan's boys who was like, right. hey, do you want to be on this movie that I'm making on the weekends? We only Can you be you, available you know, every Saturday. weekend of night? Right. I'll pay you in pints, yeah. I, you know? Yeah. And it just, uh, it's surprising though when you watch him on screen because he does seem like a seasoned actor in a lot of ways. And this yeah. was kind of just his only, literally his only credit on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Just like a very calm, cool, calculated nature. Um, also want to point out the character's name, Cobb is also the name of, of Leo's character that he plays in Inception. Right. So that that's my best performance. What about you? So I I considered that also, and I, I think he gives a great performance, but I, I went with Jeremy Theobald. Um, mm-hmm. He seems to really embody the character and does such a great job at keep maintaining the consistency of the performance and considering the production process, how they filmed over the course of a year on weekends and you know, the complex non-linear nature of this narrative. Um, I'm sure it wasn't also shot completely in order, like either oh, by, yeah. by the way it was scripted, like they had to they had to just find the scenes that they could do and the locations. And, and I'm sure it was like a real headache for Nolan and whoever his script supervisor was, um, just kind of trying to keep track of everything and what they had shot already and all that stuff. But um, so... For that reason, I just think uh, Theobald kind of inhabits this character really well, and and he's in pretty much every every scene of of the film, I believe, and um, yeah, he just really sells it, and I think he he's pretty riveting to watch, and I guess handles like the surprise elements of the film really well, and and sells all of those things. So uh, yeah, I went with Theobald. That's it. I mean, if you've got any questions then one or two all right so the next category is best soundbite and this can be a a piece of score or a a quote or uh you know a sound effect something that just really sticks out to you yeah yeah when when you think back about this film (laughs) something audible (laughs) right what's your best soundbite for this film ben so i mean it's something we've hit on but just like that charging intense grating in your face score on the opening scene how you're just like thrown into the nolan world instantly and it's just so incredibly unique i just love that this early on you could already he already had that kind of vision for for a film score relationship with you know with Hans Zimmer that he develops later in his career and and the two of them collaborate to you know to really create some of the most memorable movie scores of the last 20 years Um, but this is like the beginning of that and I just love sonically like the way that it's arranged and and builds and and makes you feel uneasy so that is my best soundbite for following. I also went with that tense anxiety inducing. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's hard re- not to. Yeah, the recurring bit of score there. It's in the opening credits, as you said. And 
um, just sets the mood and the tone of the film that you're about to watch. It comes back five or six times throughout, uh, mm-hmm. kind of in the most intense and critical moments of the film. Um, yeah, it, it's a really hard sound to describe. It's it's like this has this like electronic interference kind of tone underlying it, and these these high pitched squeals at times, and this like pitter patter. Uh, so yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's gotta be my best soundbite as well. So the next thing, the next category that we're going to do for each of these films is most lasting image. And this is something that I pitched to Ben. It's sort of a theory I have about film analysis or visual media in general, I guess. Um, it's that there's a singular image that pops into your mind when you think about a film or when the film title comes up in conversation or whatever, I feel like everyone has that visual association with a film and that single image that just pops into their mind when they, when they think about a movie. So Ben, what is your most lasting image for following? I'm going to go with the flashback scene with my guy's finger and skull being uh, smashed by a hammer. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Good one. Is that yours? <laughs> no, it's not. Okay, I was gonna say like because I thought I'm like glad you mentioned the hammer. Fairly though. obscure. <laughs> I don't think Rob's gonna pick it. That'd be pretty pretty wild. Um, that is my most lasting image. Not that I you know go around in my daily life and and you know the the scene and following with uh, a random character's finger and skull being smashed with a hammer just like pops in my mind when I'm like making coffee in the morning. But <laughs> sure, in rewatching it, it it was kind of the most like striking uh visual sequence yeah. um in 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 following. what about you i'm glad you mentioned the hammer because nolan talks that they decided to use a hammer as the central weapon in this film uh, over a gun or a knife or something like that just because they could kind of pull off a plastic hammer and make it look a little more professional so that's a great choice um so i went with a different image and it comes about Two minutes into the film, it's when uh, the young man is still being interrogated by the police officer and talking about the rules behind what he was doing as he was following people. Mm. And uh, it occurs... So when I think about this film, I just think about those sequences, those handheld shots the on the streets, crowded environments where they probably had to avoid crowds and kind of steal the shots, as it were. And... So this one in particular that I'm showing Ben in my in my Zoom background yes. is uh, the young man following Cobb and, you know, the, the voiceover monologue is going on behind it. Uh, there's a sequence of these shots at varying distances and different street environments. And this one really stuck, sticks out to me because it's the way he's uh, stalking, like slinking behind Cobb and looks particularly shady in this shot and it's the one time where we really see him like look super creepy and his eyes are fixated on Cobb um so these moments in the film are what come to mind when I think about it so our last award that we'll be doing is called the what the fuck award yes uh so this refers to the moment that happens at some point, at least once during when you're watching an old movie, there's at least one moment where you're like, oh, what the F is happening here? What did Does I just make see? any sense? Yeah. It's where you kind of almost question the entire existence of the film. <laughs> right. And, you know, for me, this was the twist at the end, you know, 
Cobb kind of confessing to his elaborate scheme, which I don't think totally works uh, mm. from a narrative sense. I had to rewatch it, you know, many times to make any sense of it. I like read the the uh, plot synopsis on like Wikipedia again. Uh-huh. Still doesn't totally make any sense, but again, I think it is cool. Um, you know, definitely a a bold and challenging end to a film, and again, an approach that he continues to apply for you know the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my uh, my WTF of, of following. That's a great choice. Um, mine is at the five minute mark of the movie when we see a quick shot. <laughs> five minutes, <laughs> right? But it, I mean, hey, that's that's a Nolan film yeah, for yeah. you. Um, we see this quick shot of the young man beat up. And he has a different haircut than what we've seen. He's wearing a suit and he's lying on the ground with a plastic glove stuffed into his mouth. And this is five minutes into the film. It's kind of when we start to realize like we're we're in for a ride here. And I think I audibly said like, what the fuck was that the first time I watched this movie? (laughs) And, you know, you're then you're really set on this course of nonlinear storytelling and uh a funky timeline and and you're just like okay here we go you know what is that plastic glove about and why is he why does he have a different haircut why is he wearing a suit so that's just the moment when you kind of realize very early on into the first feature of christopher nolan that you're in the hands of an interesting narrative storyteller i think that's a good segue uh Rob, to talk a little bit here about Nolan's very like singular approach to telling his stories. So, you know, of course, like the essence of any film is its storytelling. And, you know, one of the trademarks that Nolan has become most known for is his very unique approach to that storytelling, especially with how he plays with time and narrative structure. So it's a trademark that he exhibited at the start of his career and following, which we just talked about, and then in Memento, and has really continued throughout. So, He's experimented a lot with nonlinear narrative, which mm-hmm. is basically when a movie's events and scenes appear, you know, either out of chronological order or do not follow the direct causality pattern of events. So, like in other words, it's not something where the viewer sees a series of events um, and there's a clear cause and effect between them. So, for example, Memento, a film we'll get into next, that whole movie is told in nonlinear fashion as the story is completely out of order. It's one of the most out of order films ever made, probably the most. It's, uh, it's you know, by design, it's yeah. completely out of order. But I think it works especially well in Memento because Nolan uses it there to kind of mimic the recall of human memory, given that the main character suffers from short term memory loss. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or you look at Inception, another example of nonlinear storytelling that he does when you have these stories inside stories inside stories and they're all blended together as these kind of like distinct immersive dreams. Like the number of times during like the summer of 2010 when Inception was out that I saw some like social media post that was just like Inception, mind blown. Like, (laughs) you know, just like that was like the most overused phrase of the summer of 2010. Um, But that was mainly due to the way the story was told and you know, he doesn't shy away from the ambiguous ending, again, is right. most evidence in Inception, like with that that goddamn spinning totem that is still, <laughs> I think, driving a, a portion of, of moviegoers insane to this day. Yeah. Um, but, 
you know, I think endings like that invite discussion, you know, right as you walk out of the theater. And right. You're kind of, you want to analyze it right away and you want to, you want to hear what other people think about it and you want to understand it and rewatch it. And, you know, it's not necessarily always the best thing when not handled properly, you know, and I'm not saying right. Nolan doesn't <laughs> handle it properly, but you know, some, it doesn't always work for everyone. Sure, and sure, some audience members don't like to be manipulated in this way. And, uh, one of the main reasons I think Nolan kind of gears all of his work in this direction, you know, not every of every single one of his films is, well, maybe they are honestly, <laughs> are nonlinear, but um, to an extent. he cites the uh, the rise of television and just like simple storytelling structure as something that he really pushed back against uh, as a young, you know, man and rising. Nolan hates tv <laughs> right a <laughs> rising straight up writer. hates it yeah um so i think he just really wants to emphasize the audience's incomplete understanding of what's being presented to them at any given moment and and kind of lean into that and just make make you engaged in in the story and nolan films are not necessarily great to jump into at the 20 minute mark when you catch them on cable and and like watch from there you kind of they're much better as a complete package i would say mm -hmm. um so yeah what else what else do you want to talk about with this yeah i mean so i think and you just kind of hit on it like he uses these types of narratives to basically i think play you know mind games with the viewer right so like by the end of it you're questioning everything you just saw yeah. and you, you just kind of leave the theater trying to put it all back together like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think with those kind of endings, like it is part of why he's able, he's been able to have such like a long lasting like legacy is because this approach to storytelling and the way he kind of ends certain films are things that kind of just demand a lot of uh, analysis and discussion afterwards that, you mm -hmm. know, mentioned earlier like the reddit boards for example like just places like that um pockets of the you know the internet that that people just love to discuss this and i think um you know when you look at like the prestige for example and the ending of that film like the last five minutes make you rethink you know the entire movie and kind of makes you want to immediately go back to the beginning and rewatch it mm -hmm. you know he loves using flashbacks to help reveal a twist as shown in that ending of the prestige and you know, Nolan is a filmmaker, though, like, even though his movies are intended for the largest audience possible, he'll, he still treats that massive audience with a lot of respect and, like, does very little spoon feeding, right. which I think as audience members, like, you have to respect in return. Like, congrats, Chris Nolan doesn't think you're an idiot, mm. okay? You might be an idiot. Someone listening. He you trusts could the be audience. Idiot. Nolan doesn't think you are. So uh, <laughs> he, he trusts the intellectual capacity of the audience as a yeah. whole. And I will say that like, you know, Nolan, his narratives aren't always flawless. Like they don't always work. And mm -hmm. I would say the single biggest criticism of his is like, there are just kind of like notable gaps in logic in mm -hmm. his stories. And, you know, it's my, why we made one of our awards, like the, you know, the what, what the fuck award, you yeah. know? Um, and, you know, Nolan's storytelling sometimes just doesn't make any sense. Um, it's basically like a gift and a curse situation right. with him. I agree. I think um, before we get into Memento, yeah. one other aspect I wanted to talk about here, and it's a, it's, you know, a filmmaking technique that we're very familiar with, is like his love for the crosscut, mm. the crosscutting. Um, so 
Traditionally, cross-cutting is used to establish action that's occurring at the same time and in the same place. But in Nolan's case, like he kind of puts a little bit of his own spin on it, and the camera will repeatedly cut to different places and locations that are all happening, you know, simultaneously. Um, you know, I think he just uses cross-cutting as a way to effectively build tension and suspense with the sequence ending in some kind of climax. So, for example, in The Dark Knight, there's the scene leading up to the Joker arriving at the dinner party, how it cuts from, like, that conversation between Harvey Dent and Rachel, the police commissioner getting warned and then poisoned, the judge getting blown up in her car after she opens up the letter that has, like, the Joker card, climaxing to when the Joker bursts through the door, Mm -hmm. we made it, you know, and then he goes into, like, his whole monologue. Um, Or if you want to use a more historical, like, broader example of cross-cutting, you know, the baptism sequence in you know, iconic in Godfather part one, how it cuts to all the mob hits that Michael has, has put out at his nephew's baptism. Yeah. Um, There's sort of these montages of cross cutting, which um, are really difficult to pull off and, and to write, I'm sure. And, and sort of uh, conceptualize, but he uses it as a trope of of his uh, narrative structure and, and typically pulls them off very well. Um, do you have anything more? Because I, I want to yeah, I mean, mention one more thing about following very quickly. Definitely. So the last thing I'll say about cross-cutting is like, there's instances of it in all of his films. And then in 2017, I think he just basically said like, how do I make my love for the cross-cut? You know, how do I take things a step further? Mm-hmm. How do I just double down on this? And he decided to make an entire movie right. as one long cross-cut in Dunkirk, which is a quite a flex so in dunkirk you have the story on land at sea in the air each of these things are happening at different lengths in time you know one week one day one hour but as the movie unfolds the viewer experiences them as happening at the same time with the way nolan keeps cutting back and forth to each story in just kind of this reoccurring cycle yeah and you know we don't know much about his upcoming new movie tenet but we do know that it centers around time travel and you can be sure that nolan will have some new tricks up his sleeve and inventive ways to, to no tell doubt. that story. It's definitely just not going to be a straightforward, like here's no way. act one and act two and act three. And it's cause and effect. Like it's going to be some mind bending. Yeah. You can tell in the trailer uh, that we're, know. we're in for a, another Nolan ride. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, like you said, we'll get into this with pretty much every film we talk about. Uh, there's, there's little elements of this, this structure in all of his films and the paradoxical nature of them and recursiveness and worlds within worlds. And, yeah, so it's uh, it's a we didn't pick an easy director to analyze. I will say um, his right. films are his films are dense. Um, so yeah, the last thing I wanted to say about following before we quickly move on to Memento here is Ben. You know this idea that um, Cobb kind of lays out in that first uh, break in. I meant to mention this about the the unconscious box, the collection <laughs> box that mm. he. He kind of lays out that everybody has a box in their place where they unconsciously collect little knickknacks from their life, uh, remembrances, photographs, um, old toys, what have you. Do you have a box, Ben? (laughs) I don't have one in my in my current apartment here in Brooklyn. Um, I feel like at my parents, uh, my parents home in my closet, Uh there are examples of what you just described right i kind of like want to maybe i should start start a box of yeah. that nature i don't know i feel like that would be a good keepsake good to have like tactile <laughs> right. things for your memory you know as in this increasingly digital world but uh do you do you have one 
What box? Everyone has a box. But men it's usually a shoebox. So valuables then? Nah, more interesting, more personal. I would say similar to you, I don't know if I have one in my current place. I might have multiple boxes if you want to define them that way. Um, yeah. But yeah, growing up, I always had like a cigar box or something in my room that I would, you know, it's it's just kind of a weird habit that I think kind of permeates all of humanity to to stash stash their little- One thing is true uh, in this- humanity that we all <laughs> right. exist in everyone's got a box <laughs> we collect boxes and put weird things in them so yeah uh all right so that's that's our conclusion to following and let's move into memento i have this condition a condition it's my memory amnesia no 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 no. it's different from that what? since my injury i can't make new memories everything fades if we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. Next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. What's the last thing that you do remember? My wife. That's sweet. Dying. Yeah, so the success and attention of following gave Nolan the opportunity to make Memento. And I feel like this was one of the first films we watched together, Rob, during mm. sophomore year in college. Uh -huh. Right after we met, maybe after a game of beer pong. Sure. Distinct memory of, of watching this in your apartment then. <laughs> you sitting on that red IKEA lounge chair. Oh. Uh sure. Holding that court. was a great that was <laughs> that was a damn good chair. I um, recommend watching this movie with a as as level headed as possible. <laughs> right, right, um, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, which maybe in college we 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 maybe weren't uh sure. you know, entirely uh <laughs> Not that. So Memento first premiered at the 2000 Venice Film Festival, received a standing ovation, continued on the festival circuit, ended up at, at Sundance in January 2001, and then was later released in, in theaters in March. And just a quick backstory on this movie's release, because I think it's interesting. So a lot of the executives loved this film and praised Nolan's talent, but all passed on distributing it just because it was thinking it was too confusing and therefore would not attract a large audience. Mm -hmm. But after famed indie director Steven Soderbergh saw it, he learned you know it wasn't being distributed, and then he really championed Memento in interviews and public events, giving it more publicity. And it uh, he did not secure a distributor, but instead um, New Market, in a financially risky move, decided to distribute the film itself. And after a few weeks of distribution, it had reached more than 500 theaters, earned a domestic total of $25 million in its box office run. Uh, it became the first Nolan movie nominated for an Oscar, got a Best Original Screenplay nod. Mm -hmm. It was also nominated for Best Editing. Memento is also considered uh, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the U.S. Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in 2017. Memento, like, I, should we just start with the story and the in, where to in begin? The narrative. Uh, I mean, right. So, goodness, it's an enticing premise. I think, like, it grabs you. Like, a man with short-term memory loss, played by Guy Pierce, attempts to track down his wife's murderer. Mm. So, with the storyline, I read that to get into psychiatry corner here. Uh, okay. Apparently, the medical condition that um, is experienced by Leonard, the main character, played by Guy Pierce, in this film, is a real condition called. Uh, anterograde amnesia it's right. the inability to form new memories after uh the damage to the hippocampus uh -huh. and you know i think with memento and following nolan already establishes himself as someone with an exceptional skill for original storytelling and this story in memento was conceived by 
Nolan was joined by his brother Jonathan on a late summer cross-country road trip as he was moving to L.A. By mm-hmm. the time the two arrived, the entire screenplay had been basically like stated out loud between the two brothers. And right. That marks like the first time both Chris and Jonathan, they officially collaborated with one another. You know, he would, Jonathan would later go on to help write the screenplay for The Prestige and The Dark Knight. He also like worked on like Westworld and stuff. So he's made, you know, an Interstellar nice for himself. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, he's um, the director and, and creator of, of Westworld. Oh, damn, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, not director, but he's the he's the showrunner and creator of Westworld. Westworld and sucks. Also, uh, Person of Interest, the the this television show yeah so yeah he's a he's a accomplished filmmaker in his own respect and and this film uh i'm sorry this uh this story that they conceived together on this drive also you know the the idea kind of started with jonathan actually and he said he had this idea for a short story um and then his brother you know uh, completed the screenplay with jonathan christopher and jonathan collaborated on the screenplay but also um, Jonathan was published in the March 2001 uh, issue of Esquire magazine and uh, published this short story called Memento Mori. You know, it is a short story out there. It, and there are differences between the stories that we won't get into. Um, I read this short story. Uh, it's available online. It's about an 11 page PDF. But, um, you know, it's interesting to look after you've watched this film to read that and and kind of look at the uh the the similarities and differences between them yeah i'm sure it, it makes even less sense <laughs> um so actually the movie is a little more a little more complex coherent, coherent. um so you know memento this also marks the beginning of nolan just really messing with with time in his storytelling yeah and you see this in a bunch of his other films inception and stellar interstellar dunkirk and you know in, in this upcoming movie tenet but this is his like single most experimental film and it's just a really inventive way to tell a story i mean the film is presented as two different se- uh, sequences of scenes interspersed during it's it's a series of black and white uh that is shown chronologically but as like a flashback and then a series of color sequences shown in reverse order and then the two sequences meet at the end of the film. Yeah, it's kind of three timelines when you put it that way. I was I was thinking about how to sort of coherently state this. Um, it is yeah. two, you know, two timelines for the most part. There is sort of this flashback which you mentioned in the black and white, which is is sort of uh, Leonard Shelby, the main character played by Guy Pierce, um, reliving his recollection of a memory, which we you know, later learn is not to be trusted. Um, and then, yeah, the color sequences in the film basically play out backwards. And once you watch... Simply the, backwards. Yeah, when you watch the film in that way, yeah, it's a little easier to follow, but it's still, like, I mean, it's a really difficult movie to grasp. And, you know, Christopher Nolan has said that some of his films are more liked by people that kind of underanalyze them they they just kind of let them wash over them as an audience member and just enjoy right. it for what it is and rather than you know doing deep dives on the reddit threads and you know watching them frame by frame and re- right. rewinding like i just did for memento and that's why i'm talking the way i am but um yeah yeah it's uh it's a film that can can be watched and rewatched many times and still like even writing about this movie is i, I kind of confuse the myself more- as i'm writing about it I mean, yeah, as I was rewatching it, it was like I was seeing it for the first time. It's like yeah. maybe one of those things where it's like, 
the more you try to make sense of it, the less sense it makes. And yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty ironclad, like tight. Like they, they really, I mean, it's pretty masterful. Uh, it, the script, like it's, well, there aren't that many holes yeah. in this one. It's, it's a, it's like a stroke of mastery. I would say it. it yeah. It, it is, it is impressive how airtight it can be considering yeah. just the, the approach that they took to telling the story. This is still one of the most confusing movies ever made. No like, doubt. It, it is, it is a disorienting experience. The narrative in Memento jumps 113 times. Mm. 113. It's and like from one time period in story to another. The first scene of the movie is at the end of the story, and the story begins in the middle of the movie when Leonard meets Sammy. And it was just like, I will say though, the confusing nature of the story works in part because the main character himself. Guy Pierce is just as confused. And right. He's constantly like second guessing himself, unsure who to trust, what is real, what actually happened. It's like just like the viewer is, you become kind of like a detective alongside with them. So I actually uh-huh. think in this case it, it enhances it. Do not trust her. She's going to use you to protect herself. I think someone's been trying to get me to kill the wrong guy. You can question everything. You can never know anything for sure. Teddy, don't believe his lies. You wander around playing detective. Well, maybe you should start investigating yourself. Who did this to you? You did. I'm always thinking about that Smashing Pumpkins song. Uh, The beginning is the end is the beginning. (laughs) It's from the original Watchmen trailer in 2009. That's like a perfect title for this film. What even makes it more confusing in a way is that that backwards timeline that we're seeing in color... Um, the way that it kind of shows you, it repeats the beginning of the previous scene that you just saw at the end of the scene that you're currently watching. Even just saying that out loud, I'm like, not sure that I got that right, but I'm pretty sure I did. So maybe hit that 15 second rewind button on your podcast app. Um, it's, it's very complex and... (laughs) It really messes with your head as you're watching it, but once you kind of understand the logic behind the structure, it does it does kind of align and and kind of click in. But you really have to focus. Like if you yeah, if this you stand isn't like up, a second screen experience. No, not at all. Like, like even if you stand up and go to the fridge and like fill your water cup, you'll be like, start from right, the beginning. I'm lost. I got to start the movie over again. Right. You know? Yeah, I was in revisiting Memento, like kind of struck by how much of a Groundhog Day vibe there is definitely because of the story structure and like you keep seeing slightly different versions of the same scenes and actions like yeah over and over and over again and i think this is it's definitely as i think we've made clear the most challenging movie nolan has ever made like you know this is back in a time you know where he isn't really you know well known there isn't really any pressure he wasn't tied to a big studio or budget like not that he was ever one to really compromise but like here there's like no strings attached could really afford to give like zero F's and just let his like imagination run wild. For sure. And I, I yeah, I wanted to, to, to point that out. Do we want to um, talk a little bit about the performances? Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect time. And I wanted to, for the first performance note, I'll mention just getting back to that groundhog day uh, reference, the actor of Sammy Jenkins. Did you recognize Sammy Jenkins and who he is? 
Joey Pants? No, Sammy Jenkins. The uh, oh, oh, in the, oh, yeah, in the yeah, flashback yeah. memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, I, I, I recognize. It's uh, Stephen yes. Toblowski who plays Ned Ryerson in right, in Groundhog right. Day. Oh my God, Phil. Blown. Phil. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so yeah. Anyway, well, so uh, what do you want to? So let's let's talk about the performances. So Guy Pierce plays yeah. Leonard Shelby, the the lead. Uh, Carrie Ann Moss plays Natalie. And Joe Pantoliano plays Teddy. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. Who cares if there's a few little details you'd rather not remember? What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. And then uh, another great performance I thought is uh, Mark Boone Jr. plays Bert, who's sort of the uh, the clerk, uh, the the front desk attendant at the motel that yeah. downtown. Great in. name. Yeah. Mark Boone Jr. He's also in. He has a part in Batman Begins. Mm. I, I I realized too. And so Guy Pierce, um, you know, actually Brad Pitt was initially slated to play this role, which I could definitely see. Like they're they kind of look, you know, they're cut from the same jawline. Uh, <laughs> you know, Guy Pierce and Brad Pitt, and their voices sound kind of similar. And voiceover is used a lot um, in memento and the blonde hair he's, he looks like he kind of looks like brad pitt from seven in this film yeah it is right right I, I could definitely see that um the definition of like an unreliable narrator because of his oh, yeah. condition of short-term memory loss he does have like striking physical traits i mentioned the jawline mm. like <laughs> the constant paranoia in his eyes the the memory tattoos which right. look damn cool by the way uh, that'd make a good like film nerd Halloween costume. It's <laughs> yeah. Like, oh yeah. That's know? a good one. <laughs> and I also great penmanship by Pierce yeah. on the Polaroids. I, I love the use of Polaroids in Memento. Oh, yeah. Like just the way I was gonna get the into image that. needs to fade in. It just ties in so well with the theme of like memory loss. And definitely, I think like the obsessive detective nature of Guy Pierce's character, like we mentioned, you know, Thinking back to like Doodlebug in the beginning, this theme of uh, obsession, and you know you see it with Guy Pierce and Memento, and then in like uh, Hugh Jackman's character and the Prestige, and you know uh, the uh, obsession is a theme that I think is used throughout no the you know Nolan's career. Yeah. Um. But uh, that obsessive detective nature of Guy Pierce's character, I think, bleeds into like the detective nature of um you know Batman and the Dark Knight. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, this film. It's we can talk about it and analyze it for hours, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, it's it's heavily driven by the voiceovers of Guy Pierce, both in sort of real time and his his expository phone conversations that he's having. It, the first time I watched this movie, all I wanted to know was who he's talking to on the phone. And we do learn it at the end, but it's it's pretty subtle. Like, you even have to yeah. maybe watch it a couple times to realize, like, oh, that's who he was talking to on the phone. I'm trying to avoid as many spoilers as possible. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's driven, as you said, by an untrustworthy narrator and to the, to the extreme degree here. Um, yeah, and it's just a fascinating structure in so many ways do you want to talk about a little bit the technical filmmaking elements in terms of uh you know it's shot anamorphic lenses super 35 239 what what that what is anamorphic what's an anamorphic lens if you want to educate well, myself and I've, I've definitely heard of them i forget exactly what they are so it's it's a it's a lens is an anamorphic lens and so it's it 
it gives you the CinemaScope 239 aspect ratio. And it's actually shot in a way that's super stretched and you have to kind of convert the the footage and or it's it's shot to fill the frame uh the third super 35 frame but then you stretch it out so it gets wider and into that 239 aspect ratio and what's a 239 aspect ratio look like that's if, uh... i mean it's this film it's it's cinemascope it's uh it's very popular yeah. most uh, especially films shot on film um are mm. in this uh, cinemascope aspect ratio anamorphic lenses um it is a superior technology in many ways because it uses it utilizes the entire super 35 frame um it, it's pretty i mean it's it's kind of complex to like go into the science of capturing light but um yeah. it's something i'm studying right now and i'm i'm still you know learning a lot about it i yeah. still have a ways to go but um you know it's it's something uh, Nolan was very sort of, uh, I guess, nervous about um, hiring a cinematographer for this film um, because he, like I said, in in following, he had shot everything himself up to that point. And so he he went through that process and ended up uh, hiring Wally Pfister. And they went on to collaborate on seven Christopher Nolan feature films, the the next seven, yeah. Um, starting with this one, and and Wally Pfister's background is interesting. He started as a uh, cameraman for a news channel covering Capitol Hill in Washington D.C. Um, and I guess they they kind of found this bond because of their their um, similar taste in terms of using natural light and and the anamorphic lenses in this in this. Um, film and and going forward and uh you know nolan at before this point never had the budget to shoot on anamorphic lenses they're very expensive just to rent um but you know he he got to use them for this and use yeah an anamorphic lens would have been the entire budget for following oh more way more (laughs) just to rent one entire right yeah yeah. so they shot on panavision panaflex gold and uh the gold 2 camera panavision e-series anamorphic lenses um so yeah, that's a little bit of the technical cinematography technical elements of right it, there, but brought to you by, uh, brought to you by <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I th- I, Wally you know, Fister's I collaboration say, um, is key, and we'll get to that more when we talk about yeah. some other films. But yeah, go ahead. Sure, sure. I think you know the voiceover that we mentioned. Many of those were actually improvised by Pierce that I read, and I think they work well because again, yeah, putting the viewer inside of his like just manic mental state, like you're right there, right there with him. Um, a part of the voiceover that actually one of my favorite scenes in Memento is the scene where Leonard is being chased and he's like, okay, so what am I doing? I'm yeah. chasing this guy. Oh no, Such he's a chasing good me. Yeah. Like Nolan movies, they're known for a lot of things. I wouldn't say they aren't necessarily known for like dry humor, mm. but like this is a, a, I think a really, you know, refreshing example of like that winking dry humor that, you know, you just don't really see a lot in, in Nolan's movies. Yeah. There's um, a, there's a good bit of that. Like Bert, uh, you know, selling him two uh, motel rooms at the discount inn rather than one because he knows he won't remember he's paying for two. That's a that's a good bit of levity there. And and Teddy's character provides some comedy in yeah. this film. Memento, so. it's, a, it's a laugh riot. Really. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. when you think about it. Um, here's a nugget that you'll love, Rob, which maybe you've come across in your research, but uh-huh. Nolan, huge fan of Radiohead, as you know we are. And 
he wanted freaking paranoid android as was originally going to be used as the song in the closing credits oh wow um i didn't know that nolan decided that the royalties uh needed for you know to use this song were obviously you know way too great for like a low budget uh-huh. film a tom york track is late is, is is later used uh at the end credits of, of nolan's the prestige mm. but like man could you imagine like memento just giving the freaking wild story mind-bending experience that it is it fades to black and then the acoustic guitar rift of paranoid android comes on like it would have added like another layer of like gravitas like that would have given me chills i might edit that together for some <laughs> right, experience yeah. i have my own cut <laughs> yeah. memento i just swapped in paranoid android no i mean I, that would have worked like so well i feel like yeah. it would have like increased the legacy of this film by like five percent i don't know um, well, speaking of an yeah. speaking of an alternative cut, this film came out just at the rise of the DVD era. You know, transitioning from VHS to DVD, and um, the distributor of the DVD kind of insisted that um, Nolan make a linear version of this film for the DVD. Yes. Um, I he definitely didn't want to. I'm a little unclear if it actually happened. I think it did. I think I owned the original DVD. I didn't go back and check, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, th- this, this film was kind of perfectly fit to be in that, um, DVD release era and be rewatched and, and studied as we've talked about. Well, yeah, to that point, a little marketing nugget that I wanted to inject here is that Nolan's brother, Jonathan designed the film's official website. As with the marketing strategy of the Blair Witch Project, the website was intended to provide, like further clues and hint, you know, hints to introduce the story while not providing any concrete info. And the filmmakers employed this other tactic of sending out Polaroid pictures to random people, depicting a bloody and shirtless Leonard pointing at an unmarked spot on his chest. You know, since Newmarket distributed the film themselves, uh, Nolan edited the film's trailers himself, and they were sold to inexpensive cable TV channels like Bravo and A and E, and websites like Yahoo and MSN. Um, you know, and the trailers I think were, were key in gaining like widespread, widespread public notice. And it's kind of just cool how scrappy and resourceful they got to help create buzz for this movie. You know, this was the beginning of Nolan's camp doing some innovative guerrilla marketing, uh, for his movies, a topic that we'll dive into later in an episode. Uh-huh. Um, I also noticed like the main poster for, uh memento has kind of like an inception vibe with like the mm. polaroid photos inside one another getting smaller and smaller right, right right wonder if that sparked any ideas from memento uh, yeah. inception 10 years later um but yeah something i wanted to to point out um do well, we and want this, to... this script uh obviously attracted big names you know from a little known director at that point having only released following but you know carrie ann moss and joe pantaleano both key figures in the matrix which came out in 1999 and you know guy pierce a huge actor at that point so yeah i mean just he was able to gain the trust of great actors and collaborators just by the the strength of the script how many movies do you think joey uh pantona joey pants has been in can't say his last oh uh i mean he's in the bad by bad boys franchise um he's been in a lot of films he's kind of you know He's it's 151. Wow. He's been in 150. His IMDb cre- acting credits is 151 credits. Um, so, yeah, he's been said. prolific. Yeah. And, you know, 
coming off of Cypher and the Matrix, you know, second actor to be plucked from there after Carrie Ann Moss. Mm-hmm. I think Carrie Ann Moss's performance too, she's only in a few scenes, but adds like an emotional depth yeah. uh, to her performance. It could have been kind of this throwaway character, but really makes the most of her screen time. So mm-hmm. I think she's, she's really good in this as well. Um, do we want to give out some some awards yeah let's to, dive into uh, the categories Memento. quickly yeah uh what's your what's your 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 best moment all right so this is really hard to pick a best moment or scene or whatever um this this movie is such a mind f uh so i went at the the one hour seven minute mark or so the scene between leonard and teddy and the jaguar uh where leonard gets into the car and teddy's already in there teddy in this scene is genuinely trying to help lenny and giving him real information about Natalie and um, kind of the repercussions of Leonard's actions uh, up to this point and, and going forward. Leonard asks, why are you following me? And then uh, he says, maybe I want to help you. And you don't have a clue, do you? You don't even know who you are. There's just so much. This scene to me kind of encapsulates what's going on in terms of the structure and and just how much uh confusion is in leonard's mind about what's actually going on around him and teddy is just genuinely joe pantaleano is genuinely trying to help out the character in this moment and you know he he kind of leaves it as saying you don't even know who you are yes i do i don't have amnesia I remember everything right up until the incident i am leonard shelby i am from san francisco that's who you were you do not know who you are, what you've become since the incident. You wander around playing detective. You don't even know how long ago it was. It really feels like the most critical scene in the film to me upon rewatching it twice in preparation for this. And so I chose I chose that scene between those two characters in, in the Jaguar. So yeah, I, I guess kind of obvious but i went for the reveal at the end with again joey pants central central figure is explaining kind of the truth to him and just like yeah leonard's denial in that classic nolan twist again of just like making you it triggers like the let me rethink this entire film that i just watched you know it's it's that sensation that he's just become it's very specific sensation that mm-hmm. Nolan, you know, endings can give you. And I think, um, yeah, this was like his first, like great twist ending. It's a great um, choice. Best performance. I have. Do not trust her. Don't believe his lies. Guy Pierce. I don't know. I feel like it kind of needs to be Guy Pierce. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a perfect bit of casting. I will say that Carrie Ann Moss is, you know, really makes the most of her screen time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's not a bad performance in here, um, but I I, I have Pierce. What do you have for best uh, performance? So I'm actually going with Joe Pantoliano as uh, Officer John Edward Gamble, a.k.a. Teddy. Um, There's a lot of Joey Pants love in there. Yeah, I mean, for the reasons I just laid out in the best moment category, but also just because he really glues this whole thing together for me. Um, Guy Pierce's performance is really strong also, don't get me wrong, but... um, it's also it's kind of one note and and frankly like hard to identify with or latch onto in any in any way because he's such a yeah. kind of a mysterious figure. But Teddy provides a few moments of levity in the film and um, yeah, as I said, also Mark Boone Jr. Uh, shout out to him as the uh, the discount in motel desk yeah. clerk. Both great performances. So I went with uh, Joey Pants here. 
what you what you have for your your best soundbite? So my best soundbite, um, again, hard to pick, but I chose the just the general cryptic voiceovers and and monologue and dialogue that lingers in all of Guy Pierce's uh, voiceovers. So where are you? You're in some hotel room. You just you just wake up and you're in in a motel room. There's the key. It feels like maybe it's just the first time you've been there, but perhaps you've been there for a week, three months. It's it's kind of hard to say. I don't, I don't know. It's just an anonymous room. You know, when I think back on this movie, I kind of just hear like Guy Pierce's voice in my head. Um, and yeah. so the quote that tone, I chose and that calm, just like, yeah, da, 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 da. it's, it's super like this dry. Very, it's this very wavelength. Like, that's like yeah. very specific. Yeah. yeah. It's like monotone, but, and I don't know, but also like very captivating. So I chose the quote where he says, you really do need a system if you're going to make it work. That's a, that's a key part of this film, the rules and the system and the structure that Nolan characters often give themselves even though they break their own rules but yeah that's that's the quote i chose so mine is for best soundbite it's the little bit of a score i'm gonna use the score again in the black and white scenes of leonard in the hotel room on the phone there's like this faint background score that's like this machinery like clinking Mm. it just like adds this very like subtle level of unease it's reoccurring it's just again like Nolan warping sound, you know, working with this composer to just create something that's just very sonically unique. Um, and that, and that stood out to me. So nice. That's my best soundbite for most lasting image on my end. I went with Pierce again in the, in the same kind of scene. I just think of like Pierce black and white frantically on the landline phone yeah. in his hotel room, shirtless, covered in memory tattoos. Like that, that's <laughs> yeah. my most lasting image. That's a great choice. So I'm going with actually, this is kind of a odd choice in a lot of ways, but I'm actually going with the title frame of the film mm. where Memento pops up in blue capital letters and it's we oh, see yeah. we see Leonard Shelby Guy Pierce looking at the Polaroid of Teddy. I mean, it's it's not really a spoiler because it's the very <laughs> dude. Don't feel bad. Film. This movie's been out for twenty years. It's all yeah. Good. It's Teddy <laughs> lying dead. Uh, you know, then that sequence of the this is actually the only time we see shots in reverse in the film. You know. Um, uh, Leonard, like the gun kind of snaps up into his hand. That's a really cool shot. That reminds me of Tenet in a lot of ways. And obviously, like you said, talking about the Polaroids, it's such a such a central, uh, critical part of this film. It's It's the way that Leonard functions, but it's also a huge part of you know, serving the audience significant puzzle pieces for us to try to latch on to and, and the little notes on the Polaroids. I think it's like really the key unique element to this film. And so I wanted to to honor that with my most lasting image. All right. So the what the fuck award, the WTF yeah. award, <laughs> uh, just the entire, the entire, the whole film, <laughs> entire narrative, uh, yeah. the entire film beginning to end. Every scene, every minute is a, is a, <laughs> is a what the f uh sure. if i have to get specific like the scenes with sam sammy jenkins that are presented 
as flashbacks, but move forward chronologically, unlike the sequences that are happening in the present. Like I always just, even when I was rewatching, just like really confused by like what what those all were. Right. So <laughs> it's an entire se- you know reoccurring sequence, but like sure. I, I think that the existence of that is is my my WTF from Memento. Perfect. Well, that's also where I'm going. I'm going to the reveal about Sammy Jankis and Leonard, just what that all sort of represents and means. And the so the cross-cutting between Sammy and administering the insulin to his diabetic wife and um, Leonard on the phone in the linear timeline explaining to the person on the phone what happened to Sammy Jankis. And, you know, I'm, I'm even getting confused, like, just talking about it is it's uh it's it's hard to uh explain and i also want to avoid completely spoiling it for people that want to go back and rewatch this or watch it for the first time um similar to fight club there is a flash frame i wanted to make mention of fight club and sort of it's uh i know where you're going yeah parallels to this film there's this flash frame of leonard and Sammy Jenkins, uh, when Sammy is sitting in the institution. So look out for that. It's something that uh, pops up, obviously, in Fight Club as this recurring thing. Um, but the what the fuck moment for me is that flash frame. And so I wanted to mention along those Fight Club lines, this really fun fact about this movie that the number for Teddy that is written on his Polaroid is actually the same phone number that's written on the tiny scrap piece of paper that um, Edward Norton's character in Fight Club holds that is Marla Singer's phone number. Um, so this movie came out, or it was shot September 7th to October 8th, 1999, 25 and a half days. And Fight Club came out October 15th. So after this movie came out, it can't they must have gotten an early screening of fight club um but it only premiered at at venice just before it actually came out uh to wide audiences in the u.s so it's five 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 zero one three four marla singer's number and teddy's number it can't be a coincidence if it is it's the biggest coincidence in film history but it's a fun little nugget about this film yeah conspiracy theory all right so I think let's close uh, part one of of the Nolan Chris Nolan Chronicles. I just wanted to talk yeah. a little bit about Nolan's emphasis on original story ideas, and I think this is just one of the aspects of his that I admire the most. So it's just like extremely refreshing that we've seen, you know, we've seen in the face of an increasing state of, you know, an era, increasing era of studios like not taking risks on funding original story ideas you know, they instead always fall back on ones that have some kind of built-in audience or ones that have licensing opportunities. And I think that's the fundamental reason why you see so many movies that are just reboots, sequels, prequels, you know, rehashes of some existing ideas. And like, no one movies are like a gulp of, of water in a vast desert of like trite, unimaginative movie movie ideas. Wow. And now, of course, you could say like, <laughs> like that. he went on to make, you know, the Batman trilogy which is, of course, based off previous IP. But even sure. then, like, his approach to those movies was something entirely new for the comic book genre. Like, he treated them like crime sagas with real-world mm-hmm. consequences, with a tone and visual language that demanded for them to be taken as as serious films and not just another comic book movie. Or you look at Dunkirk, which is obviously based off of true events, but 
the way that Nolan told that story was completely original. Like there's never yeah. been a war film quite like it. Yeah. The structure. Um, yeah. And I think just like he's been proven to be able to tell original stories in a complex fashion and have, you know, the commercial success. Like he gets to have his cake and like eat it too. It's what every artist dreams of. And like, you know, this quote that I came across from Damien Chazelle, you know, who made uh, La La Land and a whiplash and first man, you know, set up Nolan. Like this is a filmmaker who has managed time and time again to make seemingly impersonal projects, superhero epics, deep space, mind benders feel deeply personal. And I yeah. think at its core, what, what drives Nolan to tell original stories is um, his desire to make them personal. Mm-hmm. Cause like when you have original stories, you just have more flexibility to really shape it to reflect like your own experiences. And I think that's right. what kind of like drives it more than anything is like, you know, the more original it can get, the more personal the story can be. So well put, I don't really have anything to add to that. That's, it's great. So yeah, let's let's uh let's wrap it up there. Um, this has been part one of the Chris Nolan Chronicles, part one of, of a six part series. Thanks so much as listening. You know, uh, please rate, review, share this podcast, particularly the Nolan fans in your life. We we greatly appreciate it. And then in part two, our next episode, we'll discuss Nolan's approach uh, to working with with actors, uh, his tendency for writing complex heroes and villains, and hit on one of the most prosperous relationships in film history and that is the one between nolan and warner brothers and we'll also review his his next two movies uh the al pacino and robin williams led insomnia and the christian bale and hugh jackman um, vehicle the prestige thanks for listening as always and we're really excited to present this uh new podcast series to you all and in the words of alex hall as Cobb in following you know, I really hate it when I don't get to finish a good meal with a cup of coffee. Yeah, but don't fucking say it.